I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. I'm with my friend Charlie Deist, who is not only the technician, he also keeps me on track with occasional questions and timely summarizations. This is episode eight, the story of the red telephone books. So David, in episode six, we talked about liturgy and culture, and you briefly made reference to the famous red telephone boxes from the UK. I mentioned that I used to have one on a keychain after my sister brought it back from England as a souvenir. There was something in that design, it wasn't random, that makes these so iconic. No one brings back a souvenir of American phone booths when they come to visit. So why why is that? And why is it worth talking about? Well, I think it's worth talking about precisely for the re- reason that you mentioned, is that here we have something which is just a, pe- a piece of ordinary street furniture that has become beloved by those who see it. Um, it's uh, associated with, for example, the traditional English village. You'd expect to see the red post box and the red telephone box. And it's as, uh, in, as much in harmony with the beauty of the village as the thatched cottage or the, the neo-Gothic church, which, which is usually they are neo-Gothic, they're Victorian rather than originally Gothic, and we'll come to that in a second. Um, but also my idea that the inspiration for the design, uh, which I think is responsible for its, its success, comes from liturgical forms, that, that you can trace a line through the architects and the, how it actually happened and see that even the telephone box, something with, with, which has no religious purpose whatsoever and shouldn't, that it wouldn't be appropriate to it, um, nevertheless can in some way speak of um, man's ultimate purpose. So even making a phone call for, for the Christian <laughs> is in, um, can be in ha- harmony with our ultimate end, just as all human activity can. Um, and so I want to highlight this really as a, a possible model for designers today to think about um, that the beauty of something really does have an effect and um, it can be evangelization by stealth in, in some ways. In what sort of movement or milieu did this style of architecture come about? Well, it's, it has its roots, um, really going back to uh, an architect we mentioned last time called um, A.W. Augustus Wellesley, I think, or Wellesby, I'm not, Wellesby, I think. A.W. Pugin, Pugin was his surname, P-U-G-I-N. Um, and he uh, set out, he was a Catholic convert in the early 19th century, who set out to create what he felt was a distinctly Christian style of architecture. Um, and he looked at the churches around him and <clears throat> he saw uh, the Gothic cathedrals, which he called pointed architecture. Um, and so he did an analysis of those churches uh, and you can buy the book today of his principles of pointed architecture I think it's called um, where you you see this analysis um, and he decided to apply those principles in his own designs and so he is the man who started what we now call the Victorian neo-gothic new gothic um, movement so the original gothic Uh, began in France and very quickly spread to England um, in the 12th century, something like that. Um, And uh, 
lasted for two or three hundred years. In England, um, it lasted right the way through to the 16th century um, and was uh, really the uh, style of architecture, not just for cathedrals, but for all buildings uh, during that period. And so Pugin started to build churches in this style. Uh, the Catholic Church was newly um, legal, the, the restoration of the hierarchy is the phrase that's used in England, so that uh, you could be a practicing Catholic and not be a criminal. Mm. Uh, for the, I think it was about 1829 or something like that. It was tolerated um, for quite a long time before that. I don't think you were in peril of being hung, drawn and quartered for quite a period before that. But nevertheless, at a certain point, um, it became legal again. And so this meant that the Catholic Church could actually start instituting bishops and was building cathedrals um, and building churches. Um, and so Pugin started it. Um, what is interesting is that uh, the Anglican church looked at Pugin's designs and decided they wanted to copy him. Yeah. And uh, so they built uh, many grand churches as well. Now, the natural flow of the culture, um, I would say, ought to be that you have the, the establishment of the liturgical forms connected to worship, and then emanating from those, informing and inspiring the forms that come out of that, uh, that should be those liturgical forms. So that, for example, you would then expect to see, uh, when you have a, a strong liturgical culture, um, civic buildings or governmental buildings built in the high architecture of the liturgical forms. Um, and this is what you started to see in Britain. So the, the Houses of Parliament uh, were burned down, and so they uh, commissioned Sir Charles Barry to build the Houses of Parliament, and actually Pugin had a hand in that. Um, he built the tower, the, the famous tower that houses Big Ben, you know, which is another iconic uh, picture of London that was designed by Pugin. So he clearly had an input but you see many, many buildings uh, built in this style. Um, so then you would start to get hotels and commercial buildings. So there is a, um, a grand hotel which has just been restored at St Pancras Station, uh, which is in central London. It's, it's the main station, one of the main stations that connects the, uh, to the railways in the nor uh, north of London, um, up to the north of England. Um, and the St Pancras Station Hotel was designed by somebody called George Gilbert Scott. And I'm going to put all these names on the website so you can store them up. But I draw him out particularly because as well as designing hotels, he made a living designing workhouses. Um, and his workhouses are now listed buildings. They're, they're um, seen as so beaut beautiful that the state has preserved them. Um, and so this indicates to me... Yeah, wait, I've got, hold on, yeah. we've got one, we've got a, a colloquial difference. Um, oh, okay. Work, a workhouse is not a well-known term oh, okay. in the United States. Well, if you, if you read Dickens, you may get... Um, some may be aware of that phrase. These were the last uh, resort for the very poor and the destitute. Okay. So 
Uh, Oliver Twist is set in a workhouse. Um, maybe you would call it a poorhouse. Um, and they were not great places to be. I'm not going to pretend that they were wonderful places to be. They were intended to be places that people didn't want to go to so that they were motivated uh, to try and look after themselves. But nevertheless, uh, there was food and there was board and uh, they took the effort to build these places in some uh, correspondence to beauty for the good of the souls of the, of the people there. Uh, thank you. Yes, you, yeah. you must jump in if I use these British phrases. Um, so uh, I just think that it's interesting that you compare the listed workhouse uh, to the housing projects of our inner cities. Um, very few of those are, list, are going to be listed buildings, I would suggest. Um, Maybe and, on a different list. Uh, yeah. The world's ugliest building. <laughs> yeah. I know Cabrini Green in Chicago gets talked about as uh, one of the, it was a housing project that, that had some of the highest crime rates and uh, I don't, I think it might still exist, but um, the, the idea that the surrounding or that the, the, the environment is influenced by the, the style of architecture. Uh, talk a little bit more about that just in the, in the context of you know, how, how would it change the attitude of the, the people living in it? Well, I believe it would be an influence for the good. It's not the only factor, and um, the, the, there are many other things that contribute to you know, a, a community which is at war with itself, if we can put it like that. Um, but I, I would say at a simple level, um, a building that is in harmony, built in harmony with the beauty of the cosmos and therefore uh, in harmony with uh, what Benedict XVI calls the, the pattern of heaven or the reflecting the mind of the creator, um, is going to be an influence which raises man, uh, the people who are there, raises their souls to God. Now everyone has free will and they can reject that and as I say, uh, there are many other things that contribute to the, the strength of a community. I'm not going to say it's the only one, but to the degree that design affects it. And I think it is important. Um, the, I believe that these designs will add to the, uh, the harmony of the uh, society that they house and to the peace of the people who are there and the happiness of the people who are there. How could a layperson detect the link between some of these forms and the liturgy? Well, I think if you, I, I'll put some photographs up there, but you get a sense that one is derived from another. You can see uh, the connection in style of the buildings. Um, and so while the St. Pancras Hotel or the, the workhouse in uh, Nottinghamshire designed by Gilbert Scott um, they don't look like cathedrals or churches, they look like what they're meant to be. But nevertheless, you can see this, um, certainly this stylistic connection, um, that, that what you have is uh, an inspiration in style permeating all that, it, that is there. Um, also, the, the, what, something that, which wouldn't be necessarily be so obvious, um, but at this time would have been in incorporated are the proportions of the building. So um, Pugin doesn't mention it, uh, funnily enough, and so I don't know whether he just relied on intuition, but certainly the architects that followed built in um, designs which incorporated uh, 
the mathematics of uh, harmony and proportion. Again, I don't know whether they used precise mathematical relationships. They will have been aware of them um, because uh, we know, for example, that, um, it ca that those ideas came to Britain and were reflected in Georgian architecture, which was a century before, through Palladio, if anyone's aware of Palladian architecture, was a, an Italian style that began in the 16th century. That architect, Palladio, wrote books on architecture and included lots of detail of mathematical proportions of the sort that I described last week. And we know that came to Britain in the form of Georgian architecture and so was part of the milieu, if you like, the, the architectural uh, practice of Britain. And certainly we can see proportional design, these, uh, these uneven stories that um, relate to one another somehow. And so remember my argument for that was that th these uh, proportions uh, reflect the pattern of the cosmos, which in turn reflects, uh, Christian would think, the, the pattern of heaven. Uh, through the visible we discern something about the beauty of the invisible mm. and these things are no different so no matter how mundane an artifact was it can incorporate these proportions you referred to pointed architecture a minute ago and i can sort of picture what that means in the context of these old churches but what is that specifically well he's just that's that's pugin's name for gothic architecture it was his personal name and i don't i'm not aware that other people use it particularly but he's referring to the the tall pointed spire that you might see um, on a gothic church that spans the divide between heaven and earth and the pointed arches oh oh and the pointed arches of course as well yes i hadn't thought about it. yeah but exactly the, the, rather than a rounded arch of the romanesque the arch has a um it looks like the two arcs uh meeting at the center and so it has a pointed arch hmm. yes okay. yes you. so why do you think that I mean, it's obviously it's distinct, and I recognize it as uh, as beautiful in the way that most buildings are not that beautiful today. Uh, where where do those? Is there some kind of underlying principle that we can point to that uh, makes it this way? Or, or well, I, I think as an architect, and we'll we'll come down, we'll come back to this. I think I, I do want to come back to what architects today can do. But there are two things you have to think about. One is what what is this building for, and then what is what are the what is the proportion of it, and so you can incorporate this liturgical proportion. It has to be incorporated into the design of the building, which is suited for its purpose. And remember, my argument is that anything that we see and behold has a purpose, not only the. Um, in a sort of narrow utilitarian sense, but through its beauty, it can participate in the the beauty of God and draw us to God and draw us to God. And this is part of what all things are do because all all things can do because all human activity ought to be in harmony with our ultimate end. So there's no conflict here. It's not a sort of superficial add-on. It's something that can be incorporated into the, the structure of it. And, for example, in the original Gothic period, they believed that it, it pointed the way in some way to the, the maximization of its utility in the narrow sense as well. Mm. That some, um, now, 
there are an infinite variety of proportions or of dimensions and that you can use so if you just think that if a ratio is you have the proportion one to two to three that allows depending on what your initial length is which constitutes the relative magnitude one uh, you have an infinite variety of proportions so although this does uh, direct people it the, it certainly doesn't restrict very much uh, the the uh, possibilities and the, it, the the architect still has to make judgments as to how to use them well just as a composer has to make judgments in music as to how to use harmony well in a piece of music so um, all of that all of that is there um, so just to sort of give more of a background, you can see the imp the other thing that is striking, I think, about this style is the power that it had. And simply, well, I was going to say simply through its beauty, in part through its beauty, but um, it's, we see this neo-Gothic architecture across the globe. Uh, one of the things that helped uh, allow it to spread is that once it had caught on in England, of course, England uh, or Britain, uh, ruled I think a court at one point a quarter of the globe um, through the British Empire and so you see this architecture everywhere um, and I showed once a photograph of Mumbai uh, I think that's the city that used to be called Bombay Mumbai um, station uh, which was built during the uh, British occupation um, and somebody said isn't this isn't this imperialism mm. um, and I said, well, I, I guess... Uh, well, he says, isn't it cultural imperialism? I said, well, actually, in this case, it might be a bit of you know, reflection of genuine imperialism. Mm. India was in the British Empire, so it's not as if the Indians had much chance to say no. Yeah. Um, however, uh, when you're talking about churches going in, in Prague or in Russia uh, or in other places, people are choosing to adopt these styles. Nobody's forcing them to do it. Yeah. And so that's not imperialism. And what I would say about India is, India is, is, is now uh, in a position where if it really didn't like that railway station, it could have built another one. Um, if it felt that that railway station reflected a part of its history which it wanted, it wanted nothing to do with, or it simply thought it was ugly and was of another culture, and was inappropriate there, they could have knocked it down and built another railway quite easily. Um, and they haven't done that. Now, that may change. Just the station, you're saying? But yes, the station. Oh, yeah. 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 I've heard that in some sense, and this is more a critique of, I think, modern bureaucratic sclerotic governments than it is of any particular country now, but I've heard that the, the railroad systems that were devised in the who knows some sometime in the 19th century in in India and elsewhere that really these things couldn't be done on the same scale today and so you have places where there are these you know extremely old railroad tracks um, that, that that are you know they can be maintained but to build something new would just would kind of be an impossibility and that's sort of an aside um, well possibly although India is not I mean that that is a reflection of the I mean, that's an economic point right. <laughs> and yeah. we don't want to stray too far into that but India has now um, started to free up its economy um, it's in a position where it can engage in public works I would say 
um, and might be able to do this. I, I think the India of the 1960s couldn't have done this. Yeah, uh, I would agree with that. So yeah. coming back to uh, the European countries and the United States, uh, where do we see? Where else do we see examples of? Uh, of, of this style of architecture outside of churches, uh, and then we'll come back to the phone booth soon, but yes. uh, churches, workhouses. Well, um, in America, um, so many of your universities and colleges have what they even call a, a, a collegiate Gothic or a college Gothic style. I've forgotten the precise phrase. You can see it on, um, Wiki there's a page on Wikipedia devoted to this style of college architecture and this came directly from British architects who the Americans imported and then American architects who learned from them and I heard there was a story that um, somebody approached Harvard an architect and uh, offered uh, Harvard the chance to design uh, a, a gothic quadrangle and some gothic buildings Harvard said no we don't know who you are Yale ended up using him and um, then Harvard said that they would they were interested in uh, reconsidering <laughs> the, the, the proposal uh, they're prepared to entertain it once again um, certainly there are neo-gothic buildings at Harvard Princeton for example has that even here in Berkeley there are buildings built in that style on the west coast um, and the list on uh, the Wikipedia page shows dozens and dozens of buildings. Now, one argument would be that clearly this is at the time when America was establishing a lot of these universities, and so uh, they would, it's likely that they would go for whatever was the fashionable style at the time. Um, but nevertheless, they were, uh, it's interesting that they have uh, built these buildings, and again, um, buildings can be knocked down and America has the resources if they wish to and American colleges have the resources if they wish to to replace these buildings with something else um, if anywhere can do it the US can yeah um, and so yes yeah, so we, we, we would see that particularly in those college buildings I think would be a nice example mm. and you mentioned also that the Anglican Church picked up this tradition from the uh, the original kind of the, the reviver of, of the Gothic style. Is, is that yes. correct? Was, was, was it Pugin, was he the reviver of this style? Or? Yes, so he's the one, yes, I would say that he is the man who began this. And it's, it's an interesting point that it was the, Ang that the Anglicans were able to do this so well. Um, and I think my theory on this would be one, that the, the will was there, but two, this was during the period of the uh, of the rise of traditional Anglicanism. So you, this this occurred when um, the Anglican Church was reviving a traditional form of Anglicanism. So the uh, British Empire uh, was spreading, and Christians in Britain uh, started to view themselves as as perhaps um, spreading the Christian faith in the way that the Roman Empire had done in you know, 2,000 years earlier. Um, and uh, so uh, what they did was started to do a lot of research into the traditional forms of Christianity. As a result of that, the Anglican liturgy 
uh, took on the form of an English version of the Catholic liturgy. And so these buildings, this style, was felt absolutely in harmony with the way they worshipped. Now, the real presence wasn't there, um, we would say, as Catholics, but um, if, if it wasn't there in substance, it was there in form, if you like, in style, uh, the, 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 the true liturgy, uh, minus that one crucial element. But it's interesting that I think um, that we now have the situation where the, that Anglican liturgy is approved, by, has, has been brought into the Roman Catholic Church. And the reason that they did that was that, uh, that people were converting to Catholicism as a result of worshipping in this way. So high Anglicans were coming across to the Catholic Church. Um, and so they, 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 wanted the, they looked at this and decided, well, actually, one of the reasons for this is their beautiful liturgy, which speaks of something true. Hmm. Uh, I've always just wanted to know the distinction between high church and low church in Anglicanism. I'm well, I would say uh, the, the, the classic phrase is smells and bells. Okay. If you've got ornate, uh, 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 the evidence of very um, ritualized worship is okay. high worship. Is it an aesthetic preference or is it an actual difference in denomination? Uh, within the Anglican Church, and I'm open to correction on this, it's, it's, a, it's not a different denomination, although I think there might be a breakaway church because the Anglican Church is so fragmented. Mm. There are some which are neither Anglican nor Catholic, but Anglo-Catholic, as they would right. call themselves. Or, so you're starting to get um, distinct denominations as well. But for the most part, um, so we say in the 19th century, um, you, there were very likely still low Anglicans who would look more like, um, you know, the, the sort of traditional Bible Christian with very plain churches or something like that as well. Um, the evangelical wing, for example, exists within the Anglican Church. Uh, so, um, but the, this uh, preference for ritualized worship uh, really took hold and dominated in the 19th century in the Anglican Church. So are you recommending, in a sense, to turn to the question of, of the actual liturgy, are you recommending that churches move more in this direction, in a, in a particular direction with respect to their architecture and the, not just the appearance, but also the, the forms within? Uh, or is this, could this be labeled, <clears throat> as I'm saying, like an aesthetic preference that some people have? You know, do we want to see many models bloom within the Catholic Church, maybe someone will come up with a, a modern style that is even more grand and that gives more glory to God than some of these older forms. So if we're talking about architecture and the, the uh, liturgical culture, if you like, as the starting point, uh, first of all, we do need um, authentic liturgy, uh, and that's a whole debate. But assuming that that were right, uh, then you want liturgical forms which are in harmony with it. And I think that Pugin um, adopted just the right sort of approach. So what he did, he looked at tradition, and the starting point needn't be the Gothic, it, 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 or even the Neo-Gothic now. Mm. It, it could be um, anything that we feel is appropriate. But generally, if you want to uh, begin somewhere, you begin from within a tradition. So Pugin decided he wanted to make a fresh start. He looked at the tradition. He analyzed what he felt 
were the authentic principles and then he applied the principles and he did so in a way that was reflective not only of the, that tradition but also appropriate to its time. And then what happened is people picked up that ball and ran with it and it developed its own distinct style. So people refer to Victorian neo-Gothic as though it's a, a disparaging term. Um, but I think of it really as a, its own style, which is clearly derived from the Gothic, but is glorious in itself. They did a very, very good job. Now, what might happen today in the context of church architecture, it might be that we re-establish the Gothic. It might be that we, we start somewhere else. But probably we need to go back to tradition work within tradition and then move forward. There are architects today in the US, uh, particularly those coming out of the um, architecture school at University of Notre Dame, which was uh, one of the leading figures there, someone called Thomas Gordon Smith, and uh, also another architect called Duncan Stroik. And their influence seems to be neoclassical. So they're looking at uh, churches of the 16th century um, and uh, using that as their inspiration and so it may be that something will will come out of there for example um, that looks perhaps like the baroque or something like that we'll see where that goes um, but you generally begin by imitation then you hope that you're imitating with understanding once you understand the underlying principles they develop organically so that my answer to this is well, let's see let's see what happens yeah okay so to, in terms of principles what principles link the uh, phone booth uh, <laughs> the, the iconic phone booth with the the style of architecture that we would see in a anglican high church building? okay well actually th th let me um i'll just tell the story of the phone box and we'll we'll uh, this will come out. So the the, des the designer of the phone box is actually the son of that guy who designed the workhouses, who was called George Gilbert Scott. His son was Sir Giles Gilbert Scott. And we mentioned him last time because he designed Liverpool Cathedral, which is the last Gothic cathedral to be completed, uh, which was completed in 1978, but begun at the turn of the last century, I would say 1904, something like that. Now, Sir Giles Gilbert Scott, unlike his father, Giles was knighted, so he was Sir Giles and was clearly one of the leading architects in Britain at this time, getting major commissions and was working in this neo-Gothic style. Um, now, at the same time, you started the phone companies in London were trying to build telephone boxes. And the problem they had was that the L London had no central uh, government at this time. It was divided up into boroughs, uh, partitioned into separate governments, a bit like the boroughs, is, is it, you tend to pronounce it in New York City or something like that. But they had much greater autonomy, and there are many more of them in, in London. And uh, what they found was they couldn't persuade enough of these boroughs to allow these phone boxes on their streets because they just didn't like the designs. Now that's interesting to me that that people would actually reject something on the ground of design and taste. Um, 
it's it's a sign of the times i think i'm not sure how much that would have happened today I, I, perhaps it would but um so anyway they had to fight to get these these phone boxes introduced um and so they had a competition uh to design the phone box and sir giles gilbert scott took up the uh the task and submitted a design now at this time he was uh president i think or chairman of uh, an organ a little organization a historical society called the sir john soane museum um, now this was the house of a famous architect who uh, died in the early 19th century and actually worked in the neoclassical style called sir john soane and his house still exists as a museum in central london i visited it um, and it's in this early 19th century, late 18th century neoclassical style. So he clearly was interested as well in um, the classical style of architecture. This is Giles Gilbert Scott. Um, and when he uh, just started to look for inspiration for this phone box, he saw the mausoleum of this architect, Sir John Soane, which was in a in a uh, a church just round the corner from St Pancras Station in North London, hmm. by coincidence. In fact, it's almost within the shadow of it. And the Victorians loved to build ornate to build ornate mausoleums, uh, and where the the Highgate Cemetery, where Karl Marx is buried, and it's a sort of pilgrimage site for left wingers. Um, has grand Victorian uh, mausoleum, the, these houses for coffins, basically. Um, so Sir John Soane had one, um, and he had this simple design of these columns and this uh, characteristically shaped roof. And Giles Gilbert Scott based his design of the phone box on the Sir John Soane mausoleum. Hmm. Um, he then split it up into windows. He didn't uh, vary the size of the windows, but the proportions of it and the feel of it uh, is in harmony with the, the Gothic design. So he brought to bear his design intuition, if you like, which will have been informed by his training in this neo-Gothic style. And so what you have is a well-proportioned uh, simple design which is actually based on a mausoleum <laughs> and so he's he is looking to religious buildings for inspiration directly uh, but he's but nobody when you look at it you don't say well this looks like it's a sort of mausoleum it, the phone box looks like it ought to be something that has houses a telephone looks fine yeah um and that's his genius that he's managed to adapt it to, to something that is appropriate to what it is and so he won this competition, uh, they and it's called the K6, I think, is the version that he uh, presented. So it was the sixth design <laughs> that, that they had. The previous five had all been rejected. Um, and, the, and then it, it was adapted by architects. So this was in the 1920s now. So in the 1930s and 40s, it was slightly adapted. And so you have K6, K7, K8, and that sort of thing. Um, and... Uh, but nevertheless, this phone box uh, became just a, a familiar sight in London cities and villages. 
And what is interesting is that, as I mentioned, people didn't think of this as something that was an eyesore or something uh, that, you know, this is modernity encroaching on the traditional uh, world and it's it's in conflict with it, which is what we tend to think must happen today. If we, if you get a modern architect in, uh, you tend to assume that what they make, even if it looks passable uh, as a standalone, it always seems to be fighting against the other buildings around it. Or if you put it in the environment, it's fighting against nature. That's that's my perception. Mm. That's my view of it. But. That certainly people didn't feel this about the phone books. They liked having them there, and they, see, they felt they added to it, actually. Um, and uh, what's interesting is that in, of course, nowadays, there's no need for a phone box. Right, Everybody, right, yeah. So, but, but what they do is they find excuses to keep them there. Yeah. <laughs> so some of them there might well be there as token phone boxes. I don't know whether any of them still have phones in there. But in, in the English villages, for example, they fought the removal of these phone boxes. So you had to find a use for them. So you have these sort of miniature free lending libraries in this phone box. You open the door and you've got these shelves with books in there. And, you, you know, it's one of those take one and please return yeah, it. Yeah. Um, but why do they do that? Why are they moved to do that? Well, because it's simply the beauty of it. And they, they love them. They're fami- they make... They add to the harmony of the the beauty of the village. And this is what was cutting-edge technological design at that time. And so my hope is that people will be inspired by this. In in some way, uh, we think of the clean-cut design of computers or something like that. What are people making today that could have the same iconic look? Well... I would say that Apple understood. I, I don't think they went to the neo-Gothic architecture school. I don't know if I want a pointed computer. <laughs> yeah. uh, but never the, the fit yeah. in my laptop bag. <laughs> but they understood the importance of beauty, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so much so that they can charge more. It, it adds a premium. Right. And not just the beauty and the design, but the ease and the harmony with the interface. Um, that's another aspect of this. Now, they're not using Christian arguments. They're, they're doing this as a commercial argument, but they can see that the, the um, beauty of it has a commercial value. In other words, it's in harmony with what a computer is. Yeah. And you wouldn't have thought there'd be anything more abstracted from the design of a Gothic church than a computer. Yeah. Yet that principle of beauty is, has made Apple a, a fortune. Mm-hmm. An absolute fortune. And that can be true for anything, I think. But, of course, the, the, you know, the point needs to be made. They haven't compromised on its functionality. It, it works with it. It's in, it. It permeates all that, all that it does. And they see this as directly contributing to, it, to its utility. Yeah. Is there anyone around today who's aware of the proportions and styles and trying to reconnect the liturgical with the mundane? Well, they, um, I'm sure that sure there are. One guy that I would like to highlight is a young up-and-coming architect who teaches at Pontifex University. That's why I asked him to create a course, Jeff Yovanovic. Um, a great story. I, I wrote about this. He att- um, ha- attended uh, a Way of Beauty summer school when I was teaching Thomas More and hadn't, wasn't, was about to go to architecture school. He had a, an architecture degree and just wanted to learn about this. 
Um, and he ended up going to Notre Dame School of Architecture under Thomas Gordon Smith and Duncan Stroik. Um, and he's now working for an architectural practice uh, in the south somewhere. I think it might be North Carolina. Um, or perhaps Georgia, so somewhere around there. Apologies to those who live in those states for confusing the two. Um, but uh, I, he is very interested in this, and I, we've had discussions about this because uh, he, he is aware of these traditional proportions, and he does try and design uh, all the projects that he does, try and bring these into what he's doing. Um, so that's why I asked him to teach the course on architectural design that the Master of Sacred Arts has. But what excites me about what Jeff is doing is that he is not yet, a, you know, he's a young architect, so he, he's not yet in the position where he's getting, uh, you know, designing grand buildings in Washington, D.C. or something. He doesn't have that reputation yet. Um, so he's doing it on the uh, rather less glamorous buildings that he's getting uh, commissions for. Um, and this is what I would like to see. I'd like to see mass housing, uh, once again, designed in these principles, ordinary homes, suburban houses, uh, commercial buildings designed using these proportions so that even in these areas, there's no sense that um, they're just concrete monstrosities or they're, they're scars on the landscape. All this, the language that you hear about man's work it actually tends to, I, I believe that, that that's why people, so many people feel that man is unnatural, is that his work is fighting against nature. They look at the cities that we see today uh, and it doesn't seem in harmony with it. And there's, there's a gut response to that. Now, I think that, that, that now objectively, we know that's true, it's not true. As Christians, we are part of creation and we ought to work in harmony with it. We, we can't. We, we, have free will, and so um, sometimes we do it well, sometimes we do it badly. Um, and I would say that recently we've done that badly. But nevertheless, if everything down to the phone box is in harmony with nature, or the computer, or the, the, the telephone, the box that contains the telephone, which you hold in your hand, uh, then our understanding of man would be different, I think. You've been listening to the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. For more information, go to thewayofbeauty.org and if you want to buy the book, go to amazon.com. Amazon.com